listening to sermons from South Point Locust Grove, where we are equipping the family of God for the mission of God, to see everyone around us transformed by the gospel of Jesus. For more information, please visit southpoint.org. We are going to be looking at John chapter 6. Here's what we saw last week. Here's an overview of the book of John. A few of the main, I can still do it. I can see y'all. Okay, so a few of the main takeaways from the book of John, or just as we look at the book of John, a few things to know. First of all, in the book of John, there are no parables, okay? It's one of the, it's the only gospel that doesn't have any parables. Secondly, there are seven miracles that are mentioned. And so these are some of the themes, the overview as we look at the book of John. We see this number seven over and over and over and over. Uh, but there are seven miracles, there are seven I am statements of Jesus, and we've been looking at those. We looked at uh, last week, I am the light of the world. Today, I am the bread of life, and we'll continue looking at those for the next several weeks, for the next uh, total of seven weeks. Uh, so we're looking at those for the next five weeks after today. But then lastly, we see John several times throughout the book. He tells us, this is why the book was written. Here is why I have written to you. The purpose statement is this, that you may believe. That you may believe. That's why we have the book of John. Probably one of, uh, probably my favorite gospel. Um, usually if somebody gets saved, you say, where do you, you want to start reading the Bible? The book of John, that you may believe. So we're going to walk through, I am the bread of life today. And so I invited Keith, or he invited himself, I'm not sure. Um, but I invited him to walk through this with me. And the reason for that is we have um, different uh, but complementary perspectives as we look at scripture and really as we look at life, as we look at relationships. And so I wanted to invite him to, let's look at how this, what the word of God says, how it impacts our lives, um, how we approach that. Um, and a lot of that perspective that he has comes from working internationally with Czech people. And so tell us how that may have impacted them as you walked with them. A few weeks ago when I spoke and we were setting up doing the uh, seven I am statements, I, I told you I was excited because when we were working with Czechs, living in Czech Republic, we would invite them to read scripture together with us. And so Czechs are among the most atheistic country in the world. And so most of the people we worked with were coming from a very atheistic or at least agnostic at best uh, point of view. And we would invite them to look at scripture. And often we would start with these seven I am statements because it was a, a great way to introduce Jesus. A lot of times we would start in Genesis, but sometimes we would do a teaser of the, the I am statements here. And so it was always interesting to see what, it, what, was, what was their perspective, a person who's never read scripture before, a person that's never been around Christianity, doesn't know the Bible at all. It's, anywhere in the States, if you talk to someone about the Bible, they know something, whereas there, there's almost, they don't know anything. And so it's not because they're dumb. These are master level or even doctorate level people that we're talking with. It's just never come up in their uh, conversations. And so it's specifically when we looked at John chapter six and this passage, they would see it and they would realize that Jesus and, and the people in the story, that Jesus is offering himself and the people want something else, that they were wanting physical bread. And it was hard for them to get off the physical reality as opposed to Jesus's spiritual reality, which is very real. And so as they looked at that, uh, one of the guys I remember we were talking through it and he said, they just want what they want instead of Jesus. And he said, I can relate to that. And actually, we're going to go through a lot of passages this morning. We're going to go through multiple verses, and I wish we had time to dig into each one of those. But we didn't do that when we did this, the 7 a.m. statements with checks. And one of the guys said, so they all believed. 
so that he would say to them, I am the bread of life that we'll hit later. And they all went, great, you're it, we believe. And I said, actually, almost everyone left Jesus at this point in time. And the guy who was reading together, he said, I would have left. I don't want to believe anything unless it gives me what I really want. I just want what I want. And if Jesus can help me get there, great. If he can't, I, don't, I wouldn't believe in anything that couldn't help me achieve what I want to believe, or what I want. And so that was a very honest answer. And we have to be honest about ourselves, too, what we say and what we believe and what we do. The other thing that... Uh-oh. You didn't like that. Okay. <laughs> the other thing that they would say often is that as we go through them, they would notice the pattern that they would ask what, how, when, where type questions. And Jesus would always answer with a who answer. I am. The, the thing that you're seeking, I really am that. And so often we get stuck in, well, how do I do this? Where do, where do we find this? When, do we, when will this happen? Those type of questions that we can get stuck in, and Jesus continually comes back to who he is. And so, as Michael was saying, uh, that John is writing because he wants us to believe that this belief place is not just necessarily a, a mathematical formula, or it's not just some type of thing that if I could see something real, if I could touch it, we see this from Thomas later, then I would believe that actually belief is something else that God is doing in our hearts, that Jesus is doing in our hearts. And this will unfold as, unfold as we get there. One of the guys that we invited to read with us, he was in, doing his postdoctorate work in mathematical algorithms. I don't even know what that means. All right? Any of those, I just know that that's what he was doing. He was being recruited by the NSA and by MIT and all these different agencies to work with these algorithms. Very smart guy. And so we were talking, we said, what would keep you from believing? He said, for me, it would always be, I just wanted to be able to come up with a formula. Like if I could see this, if I could know this, if I could get this information, and at the bottom of this equation, it would equal God is real. And he said, I realized one day that that can never work for it to actually be belief. All right, postdoctorate work in mathematical algorithms. He said, if I could come up with a formula and at the bottom it would say equals God, I would, you could not have God. If I, my mind, if my three-pound brain could actually come up with a formula that would equal God in the end based on information and facts, it wouldn't actually be God, that he's actually much bigger than that. So when we look at, we'll just start with Hebrews chapter uh, 11 here. Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. That... At the end of this passage, we're going to have to find belief and faith in something other than just signs and miracles and mathematical formulas. Yeah, which brings us to our passage. Yeah, so if you're there in John chapter 6, we'll begin in verse number 22. There's a ton of stuff here. We don't have time. Every time me and Keith sat down to, to discuss this the past couple of weeks, it's just like, man, there's just so much. And so that's why I would invite you just to kind of buckle in for a while. Um, even though we, we don't have enough time to discuss this. But verse number 22. On the next day, the crowd that remained on the other side of the sea saw that there had been only one boat there and that Jesus had not entered the boat with his disciples, but that his disciples had gone away alone. Other boats from Tiberias came near the place where they had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. So when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they themselves got into the boats and went to Capernaum seeking Jesus. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? So we see here in these few verses, we need to look back and understand why are they actually seeking Jesus? So if you look back, even at the heading right there of chapter six, maybe in your Bible, if it's like mine, it has a heading right there that says, Jesus feeds the 5,000. And this, by the way, is the only story 
that is found in all four Gospels. So we, we see here a great significance to this story, to this miracle that happens here. So Jesus feeds the 5,000. So we're not going to go into all the detail of the first 21 verses, but here we have Jesus speaking to thousands of folks, and it says the 5,000, but it says there in the passage there are 5,000 men, and that just gives us a, a, a placeholder for probably almost 5,000 families. So as we understand the context here, it's not just 5,000 people that he feeds, but it's probably 15 to 20, 25, maybe even 30,000 people that Jesus feeds. So as they're sitting on this hillside, Jesus is, is speaking. He's speaking for hours and hours, and it comes time in the day. His, uh, the, the crowds get hungry, and his disciples come to him and say, Jesus, the folks are hungry. Do we have any food? They look over at Judas, who's holding the money bags, and he's like, we don't have enough money for that. You know? So uh, it's like, go figure. Thanks a lot, Judas. Um, so Jesus says, does anybody have any food? And this little boy comes up, and he's like, I got a Lunchable. I've got like a few pieces of bread and we think fish, you know, we think like these enormous like tilapia, salmon sized, you know, mahi, mahi, but really it's probably like these little sardines. Jesus says, yeah, that'll work. And his disciples are like, I, I don't know. I don't, I don't really think that's going to work. Jesus says, don't worry about it. I got this. He prays over, he blesses it. They start passing out bread and fish. Everybody eats till their hearts are full and there are 12 basketfuls left over, 12 of them which is incredibly significant. Again, we could talk about that for, you know, the next two weeks. But there are 12 basketfuls left over. People are like, man, this guy is awesome. So he finishes his teaching. And then if you look at verse number 16, Jesus walks on water. So the evening came, there's a storm. The disciples go to cross this, uh, the, the Sea of Galilee here to get to Capernaum. And when you think about the sea, it's not just a small lake. Uh, it's actually about six or seven miles across. So it looks like the ocean they're going across. It's huge. They come into a storm. They're like, we don't have Jesus with us because he's already escaped to be with his father to spend some time to kind of recover from being around all these people. Introverts, let me, where you at? That's right, nobody raised their hand, all right? So like, I'm doing that. So, so Jesus is like, I gotta catch up with these guys. So he walks on water. So he catches up with them. They see the miracle there again. So then the next morning is when we get here to verse number 22. The crowds, they saw the miracle. They go to where Jesus was on one side of the lake. He's not there. They're like, we want to see Jesus. We want more miracles. This is awesome. So they chase him down to the other side of the lake. So they're like, Jesus, how did you get over here? Well, I walked on water, guys. Like, that's why we like you, Jesus, because you're so awesome at miracles. You're so cool. Then we pick up verse number 26. Jesus answered them, truly, truly. If this had been important, he would have just said, truly, I say to you. This is real important. He said truly twice, all right? Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me. Not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not labor for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him, God the Father has set his seal. So they are not asking from a place, Jesus, we want you. They're not asking from a place because their souls are full on the teachings of Jesus the day before. They're asking for Jesus to show a sign because their bellies are full. They don't understand the spiritual reality of what's happening here. They don't understand the spiritual significance and teaching of Jesus as much as they understand, man, Jesus makes me feel better physically. In this realm, he is satisfying me. In the realm that I can see, I really like Jesus for what he can provide here in the physical realm, this physical reality not a spiritual reality. And that's because their source of life is coming from a physical reality, not a spiritual reality. 
So as long as Jesus keeps making this life better, then I'll keep following him. As long as Jesus keeps making this life better, then I'll keep following him. Here's the question I want us to answer this morning is when do you find yourself discontent with life? Let's make this a non-rhetorical question, all right? So anybody, you can answer out loud, at least you extroverts, all right? When do you find yourself discontent with life? When you don't measure up. Yeah, yeah, Bob. When you start doubting. When you don't get what you want. When it gets hard. Yeah. When I'm involved in um, interactions with people that can hear, sometimes they don't understand deaf people. And so, and I want to know what's the best way to handle situations and, and do better in interactions with people who can hear. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Rebecca said when she's in interactions with people who can hear, she wants to know what the next best step is, and it makes it difficult for her. Yeah. Life is discontent. Anybody else? When you're suffering physically. Yeah. And all of us have an answer to that, right? We can think about that when we find ourselves discontent with life and it becomes so natural for us to go to the physical fix. So like the Czechs, like the Jews here, and like the Gentiles that whom also Jesus is speaking to, like all of humanity, we really just want satisfaction in this life. We really just want life to work. We want this life, everything to be fine. Like we're okay even if life isn't great. As long as life is fine. You see, we're just like these people because what they wanted more than anything was ultimately not about Jesus. What these folks wanted more than anything was ultimately not about Jesus. But notice how Jesus answers in verse number 27. We just saw this. Do not labor, labor for the food that perishes. In other words, don't follow me for the physical, but for the food that endures to eternal life. Now, there are three words for life in the Greek language in which John was written. The first word is psyche. Everybody say psyche, which literally just means existence. So if they use the word psyche, we would say life. We know that you're alive because you have brain waves, okay? Some of us are more alive than others. You know what I mean? <laughs> Some of y'all have multiple kids. You know what I'm talking about? Uh, the second word is the word bios. Everybody say bios, which is the word where we get biology, this physical realm. We know that we're alive because biologically things work together. But the word that's actually used here when he talks about eternal life is the word zoe. Everybody say zoe. Or you may know of a girl named Zoe. So it's the same thing, which really means a vibrancy or a divine life from God. Here he says, stop worrying about just the physical, the biological. Don't worry about if your brain is working, the things that you can see, or maybe even the things that you can't see. You know that you exist. He's saying what matters most, what I'm bringing to you is a divine life from God. That's what you should be coming to me for. And so Jesus responds to their request for food in this life 
by saying there's a deeper meaning to this life. And oftentimes, we're not even worried about it. When we find ourselves discontent with life, we're often not worried, how can I find ultimate true satisfaction? We're just figuring out, how can I make it through this? How can I just make life work? And Jesus comes to them and says, I am life. I am life. He says, I'm with you right now because of my humility. And I'm going to be broken so that you can be made whole, so that you can experience life. So can you tell us about maybe what happens when we are discontent with life, where we look for other sources? In verse 27, where he says, there is food that perishes. You know, I think when we begin to look for life in other sources, and we, and we all do it. We all have these catches in our, in our soul and in our beings where we believe, if I just had this, I would have the good life. I would have what I really need. But all other sources of life, what he's saying is they're going to perish. And so there's a reality that we're talking about earlier. And in that reality, Jesus is saying, I'm right here. I am what is real. And when we put our focus on a different type of reality, anything that we, when we think about bad things in this realm, when we think sex, drugs, and rock and roll, anything that we can do that's going to keep me from enjoying reality and to be fully present with this. There's a, a comedian uh, who talked about, wrote some inc- incredible articles about his own life. And he said, I don't have a drug problem. I have a reality problem. I do drugs so I can dull myself from the pain that I feel in living with reality. So whatever other sources that I feel like I need, that I have to have, it will kill you. It dulls you to ultimate reality, which is Jesus Christ. It's a replacement. It could be even good things. It could be things if I want to get attention or if I want affirmation from my friends or if I need to have... Uh, there might be health issues that I'm praying for miracles. So things that aren't bad, ultimately, that I'm looking for. But if, it's the idea, that catch in me that says, if I just had it, I would be okay. If I just had it, I would have life. And so I began to look for other places. So the question that we have on the screen for you is this. What happens when I don't believe Jesus is life? What happens when you don't believe that Jesus is reality? then what we seek for is a different type of reality. And where else do I look for life? So maybe you could answer that question as well. What, what happens when you don't believe that Jesus is life? Any thoughts? You start to get hungry. Yeah. You try to find it on your own. Yeah. The sign in McDonough, what's the sign? What does it say out front? Do you remember? Something about hunger and souls. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, good. <laughs> it's something about, you know. Christ alone uh, satisfies a hungry, a hungry soul. soul. Oh, good. Good job. All right. Yeah, Christ alone satisfies <laughs> a hungry soul. The other day, I was driving into the office up there, and I saw that sign. I actually helped put it up, but it didn't strike me because I was speaking, and I was too nervous. But when I was driving in later, I saw it, and I went, the problem with me is I rarely have a hungry soul. Right? There's too many things to fill it with. I don't wait to actually feel the ache of the hunger. If there's silence and I feel the ache of silence, I just fill it up with noise. More information, more pleasure, more entertainment. I don't know if you do this for Lent, but I, you know, what, if you believe doing this type of thing or not, but for Lent, you, know, you can give up something for those days. You can fast for something. So I decided to fast from social media. Do you know how long it was before I kept, and I just erased it from my phone? And my hungry soul in these moments where someone said, hey, I'm sorry, I'm running late. You know, I'll be there in five minutes. I would go, okay, no problem. 
and I would, my thumb would automatically go to a social media app. And I went, oh, now what do I do? I guess I'll just wait <laughs> for five minutes. <laughs> yeah. I would fill my soul with anything. So rarely am I hungry, but then I'm always hungry. Right? Because what happens when I go to other places, and I believe that. And of course, if you gave me a multiple choice test, social, looking at social media is life, Jesus Christ is life. Which box am I going to check? Jesus is life. I know which box to check. But in those moments, I rarely wait, and do I stay hungry long enough to fill it with something else? So I, when something, someone doesn't come through for me, it would be another thing. So if I don't believe that Jesus Christ is life for me, and I take that question of life to others, what do I do with them? They either become an obstacle or an asset to get me to where I want to be. If Jesus Christ isn't life, if I don't rest in that reality, and I take that question to Rachel, will you give me life? She either becomes an obstacle or an asset to give me what I really want. And you can't ever get it that way. Right? It always leaks. It always leaves you exhausted. It always goes away. And no matter how well she might do it, answering that question, saying, yes, I am your life, or I will give you life in my acceptance of you, or making you look great, or saying how wonderful I am, or the opposite. And she, maybe she doesn't have to say, she would never say, I don't think you're the greatest person on earth, but maybe her look communicates that to me in that moment. And I'll interpret it that way and project those things. So where else do I look for life? Where do I go? Verse 28, it says, what must we do to get this kind of bread? And isn't that where we live? What, what do I have to do? What kind of bargain can I strike with God? If I do my part, will you do your part? And I am left with this place of discontentment. You ever play that game where you have to dip a spoon into a water bucket and run it back and fill a glass? Anybody ever played that, make youth group games? It always, you know, you can't ever make it. You can only get like a couple drops and you're left exhausted trying to fill that class with something that isn't going to be able to do it. So years ago, I'll just tell the story quickly. Uh, Eli and I, he was still in grade school and we had pulled up to a light. And at this red light, coming the other direction in the other lane, they had a red light as well. And there was a truck that was kind of lifted up a little bit. It was a big truck and it had really nice tires on it. And behind it had this really cool boat. And I look over at Eli to see if he was... Uh, sinning with, um, you know, a discontentment and um, coveting the way that I was. And I could tell by the look on his face that, yes, he was lusting in that moment. And I j looked back, and I continued in my own covetousness ways. And I looked, and what was going on in my brain was, that would be so nice. That would be living. That would be life. And within just a couple of seconds of both of us in this state of staring at this truck and this boat that it was pulling, on the other side of this truck pulls up a bigger truck, a little bit higher, a little bit nicer tires, and a little bit bigger boat. And the guy in this truck turns and looks, and we realize in that moment that what was going on in his heart was that he wanted that truck and that boat, that the one that he was in currently was not doing it for him. Anybody else with me? And both of us, Eli, uh, Eli and I both, we just started laughing. And there was never any words that's changed in this, that we just started laughing, knowing that that guy started thinking what we were thinking, even though he had the boat and, and the truck that we wanted. And that's where it is. So Jesus tells them, you have, we had manna, or they're saying to Jesus, we had manna. And what does Jesus say to them? How did that work out for those guys? It left them grumbling and dead. Anytime we continue to put our source of life in something other than Christ, 
it will leave us in a state of grumbling, discontent, and you're ultimately you're going to die. Let me just say it this way. It's not, if I just had a little bit more, I would be okay. No, you will die. The only place that it leads to is perishing. And when you take your source of life to other people, you're not offering life, you're taking life. It perishes. Yeah, which brings us to verse 29. So as we pick up in verse 29, Jesus answered them in their search for life. He says, this is the work of God, that you believe in him who he has sent. What's the work of God? That you believe, that you may believe. This is the point of John writing. He says that you've been believing him whom he has sent. Verse 30. So they said to him, then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Yo, the day before, he had fed all these people. They showed up, they were hungry. He fed them with a couple of, of little biscuits and sardines. And now they're saying, hey, we want you to do more stuff. This past, we were talking. Tell them what you said about this. I'm on mute <laughs> so I can drink. <laughs> <laughs> I'll tell them. Yeah, I don't We set know. this up well. <laughs> we really had this planned out. But we were talking, and, uh, and Keith said, yeah, it's like if, you know, the day before in verses 1 through 21, you know, if, if you go see Jesus and he does this miracle and he feeds everybody, that night somebody probably went home and said, hey, come see Jesus with me. Yeah, he does these awesome miracles. Jesus is really cool. You won't believe it. So they show up the next day and Jesus starts speaking again. And the, the, you know, the person with a friend is like, hey, just we're going to get through all this stuff. But in a minute, you'll see the miracles. It's really awesome. It's really cool. Once he gets through the whole dialogue, you know, this whole thing, he's going to keep, keep talking. But then you see the miracles. That, that's, that's the cool part. Keep waiting on that. Jesus, show us the miracles. Then we'll believe. We, we need more. We need more stuff right here in the physical, in the physical reality. Verse 31. Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you bread from heaven, but my father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. And they said to him, sir, give us this bread always. So keep giving us this bread. They don't get it. They're still in the physical realm looking at this immediate physical life, not the spiritual life. A couple of questions for you. And maybe this morning, if, if you're like, yeah, I, I'm still struggling, wrestling with what faith looks like. Maybe these are your questions. First, what would it take for you to believe? And maybe consider the folks around you who you work with or your neighbors or an unbelieving brother, sister, mom, or dad. And they were like, man, if I, just, if I just had fill in the blank, then I would believe. What would it take for you to believe? But then secondly, another way of maybe asking that or stating that is, if I just had what, then I would believe. Finally, that's the, that's the approach of these folks. If we just had that Jesus, yeah, we, we got Jesus, we just need something else. If we just had a sign, something, then we would believe. Or maybe this is you, two more ways of of asking this question, I think even for those who would say, I'm a believer, I'm a Christian, yeah. Jesus, you know, we check the box. Jesus is the answer. What are you looking for when it comes to Jesus? Why have you placed your faith in Jesus? Why do you trust him? What are you looking for when it comes to Jesus? And in those areas, those times of discontentment, what would make your life full or what would make your life complete? 
We have to answer that all the time because like good religious folks, like us, their focus was in the physical realm on Moses. They said, why can't you be like Moses who gave us food in the wilderness? Why can't you do that trick? Now, if you understand the context here, a ton here, if you look back at verse number four, the timing of this, they're coming into this time of Passover, which is a remembrance of Moses leading his people out of Egypt into freedom, into liberty, into their own land, into prosperity. So the folks here are about to celebrate this meal that has been given to them by God the Father, this meal of liberation from slavery, giving them everything that they've always wanted, their own land, possessions, all of these, all of these different things, and they're coming to Jesus. Why can't you be like Moses who did these miracles in the desert for us? Why can't you give us this bread-like substance, this manna every single morning? Why can't you be more like him meeting our physical needs? Come on, Jesus. What's wrong with you? Just do the stuff you did yesterday. Jesus responds by saying, the manna did not come from Moses. Moses was not the point. The bread was not the point. The manna was not the point. The point of the miracle was the miracle giver. The point of the miracle was Yahweh, God himself. The religious folks missed it. They knew all the right answers. They knew their history. They were here in Jerusalem, crossed over to Capernaum. They knew about Moses. This is the person they respected the most, but they still wanted more because their life was not complete. Jesus says, I am the gift of life. I am what comes from the Father. St. Augustine said this, how many seek Jesus for no other objective than to get some kind of temporal benefit? Jesus is scarcely sought for his own sake. Here too, this is Augustine speaking about John 6. Here too he says, you seek me for something else. Seek me for my own sake. And that takes us to verse number 35. Yeah, it was a great lead into 35 through 40. We'll just read this together and then we'll come back and unpack it a little bit. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me, and yet you do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I shall lose nothing, nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life and will raise him up on the last day. So you look at this, the, the word see and look has been throughout this entire passage. It reminds me a lot of Nicodemus where he says, you have to see, you have to look to the Son of Man. And so when we see this as I am the bread of life, the, the, the words here are really interesting uh, I'm not going to say this correctly in the Greek, so I'm going to Americanify the uh, words uh, here for this. I don't know what the sign language word for Americanify is, but try that out. So, <laughs> but the words ego and emi are used here. So I am, and it sounds a lot like when we talk about Yahweh, when we're talking about when, when uh, and Mark did a great job of last week of going back through the Old Testament and talking about when Moses was at the burning bush, when he says, who, 
who should I tell him sent me? And God answers him that his name is Yahweh. I am that I am. I am, I was yesterday, I am today, I am in the future. I am, always. And so he comes to this, in the, in the word, it's not the same thing as, as saying, I am going down to Jerusalem. The words you would use there, I am going down to Jerusalem. Jerusalem. Or when Pilate says, I am innocent of this man's blood. The usage of the word I am in that, just to use the, the words, the helping verb there, you don't have to do that in the Greek language. It's actually the same in the Czech language as well. So if I were to say, I am speaking, you can just say speaking, because the word for speaking, the way it would end, would set up the fact that I am the one that's doing it. All right? So in the Greek, it's the same way. You, don't, you can just use one verb, and it tells you who is doing the action in the verb by the way you use the verb, because it has a different ending. So if I could say, Michael is speaking, I would use a different word for speaking than if I said, I am speaking. Everybody with me on this? Right? You just have to say speaking, and you, that word, speaking, tells you I am doing it, or you are doing it, she is doing it, we are doing it, what you like to do it to. Like it just, it tells you every, everything that's happening in that. So the fact that Jesus here, in one of our language classes actually, I kept using the word I, and then I would say speaking. And, the, and I did it a couple times, and the teacher says, no, you just use the one verb. And one day I did it again, I said, I am speaking. And she said, don't ever do it again, or I will kill you. <laughs> and I thought, I don't know if she's serious or not, but it helped me. So in Jesus, though, he is doing this exact thing, though. He is saying, I, ego, am, I am. So I, I am speaking. Which makes it a direct reference back to when Moses is speaking, or when God is saying, I am. So he is connecting very specifically. We see this in John chapter 8. I, mean, I saw this last week when he says, before Abraham was, what does he say? I am. Emi, ego Emi uses both of those. They knew exactly what he was doing. He was revealing his name. He's identifying himself as the one who is and who was and will be. He's referring to himself as the Alpha and the Omega. He is connecting himself to the divine identity in this of saying, I am God. He's not saying, I'm a good prophet, I'm a good teacher. I am just a, a good person. He is actually identifying himself as there's nothing better. Right? When they say, can you give us more bread? Can you give us a miracle? Can you give us a better talk? Can you tell us something that would explain it? And he says this, he doesn't have anything better than his name to offer them. Do you understand that? I don't have anything better than me. I'm it. Whatever else you want, it will perish. It will go away. I'm it. He could have shown them a sign. He could have levitated everybody. All right, here's a sign, and everybody starts floating. He could have shot fire, boom. He could have done all these different things. He doesn't do it because ultimately he knows that giving the, them those signs actually doesn't create heart change. It reminds me of the rich young ruler who comes and says, what must I do? And, and he, Jesus points to himself. And the rich young ruler goes away, and I think Jesus is doing the most kind thing he possibly can for them in detaching them from any source of life other than himself. He is saying, there's no other source of life other than me. But for me, and this is, I think, true for all of us, and maybe it's true for you, there are places in my heart that detaches itself to other sources of life. These are the things that keep me up at night. Last week, I woke up around 2.30 or so at night, went to the restroom, came back to bed, and couldn't go back to sleep. My mind was spinning with all the things that I had said earlier that day. I was rehearsing all the conversations that I had had earlier that day. Anybody else do this? And I thought, I should have said that. I should have said this. I should have walked away. I should have done. All these shoulds just flooded me in these conversations of what happened. 
during that day. And I made this vow. I'm not going to say nothing to nobody tomorrow <laughs> so I don't look like an idiot, right? I even had this. I was filling up with gas. There was no one behind me, but the, it was pretty full. Most cars had someone behind them. I didn't have anyone, but I, I, was, I was pumping the gas. I was thinking, if someone was behind me, what, what would they be thinking? Would they be thinking that I'm taking too long? So now I got into this argument with a person that wasn't behind me, a hypothetical person. And for 15, I get in the car and I finally finish pumping the gas and I'm driving down the road. And 15 minutes later, I'm still in an argument with a hypothetical person that thought I was taking too long. I wasn't taking too long. I was doing it normally. Anyone else there? I'm gripping the steering wheel, angry. I see some of you pointing at other people that you think probably do that. So thank you for doing that. It makes me feel not alone. Because there's something that's still in me that says, if I could just get people not to be mad, hypothetical people not to be mad at me in the gas line, I would, ha I would be okay. There are still these catches in my, and that's a funny one, but we do it in all kinds of ways, right? I was talking to a, a guy yesterday, actually, just in my neighborhood, and I said, hey, how's it going? And he said, I'm this close. I'm this close. And I said, that close to what? He goes, I'm this close to making it, to being rich. I'm really this close. And I was like, oh, great. I'm not. <laughs> he said, I am. He goes, I'm this close. If I can just get this one more deal, if I can just get this one more deal, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to finally get it. And I said, when you get it, what, what will happen? What do you think you'll have when you get it, when you finally get, when you get that thing? He goes, I'll have freedom. And I'm getting out of America. <laughs> and I said, good luck. <laughs> All right. I'll have freedom. But Jesus is a detaching us from every source that we call life except for him. And this is the, uh, again, with uh, Augustine quote that I would like to share here, I think is in the slide. It says, you have made us for yourself, and our hearts find no peace until they find, until they rest in you. You made us for yourself, and our hearts find no rest until they find rest in you. In other words, we are made to hunger for Christ. We are made to feast on Christ. And only then will our souls be satisfied. That's it. That's the way that we are created is to be one with him, to feast on Christ. Maybe even right now some of y'all are hungry. You feel that <laughs> grumbling in your tummy. I mean, I can't wait for lunch. I can't either. I, I just had like a small little granola bar this morning. But when you feel that, it's like, man, I, I got to feel that again. I gotta, I've got to fill my stomach again. And the same is true in our spiritual lives, our physical lives, uh, our emotional, our psychological. We, we want to we fill our lives with so many things, and yet we come back and we're hungry again and again and again. The things that we spend money on, the things that we spend time on, the things that we watch, the things that we look at on our computer screen, um, even a relationship with a person. Man, if I just was married, if I just had a better marriage, if I was just married to somebody else, if I just had kids, if I just had more kids, if I had different kids, if I had whatever it is, it's like, man, if I just had that, then it would all be good. That's not why we were created. We're created to be in relationship with Christ. And then our souls will be satisfied. And Jesus says here that the bread equals life. I am the bread of life. I am the bread. I am life. If you think about bread, it's made from wheat. Our bodies cannot process wheat. Raw wheat. Wheat with the H in there. <laughs> our bodies cannot process, my mom was an English teacher, so our bodies cannot process raw wheat. Uh, if you try to eat wheat, all it's going to do is going to make your mouth really dry. 
it's actually going to dehydrate you, and then your body is just going to shovel it through, <laughs> and it's not going to take any nourishment from it. The wheat has to be chopped down at the stalk. It's got to be broken. It's got to be crushed. It's got to be cut. It's got to be beaten. It's got to be made into a fine powder. Then it's got to, after it's refined, it goes through a heating process. Things are added to it. But then at the very end of what you take that wheat, what it does is that, that bread, that dough, it rises. Once the dough rises, then it's a delicious piece of bread. All of the same elements are there that were there in the wheat, but your body can't process that wheat. But once it goes through this plan of God, the will of God that we're about to see, then once it rises, then we feast. This is the will of God. This is the finished product that Jesus is talking about. He says, stay with me, hang out with me. I'm speaking kind of in these weird things that you're not going to pick up on in the physical. You're only gonna pick up on it if you have eyes to see if you have ears to hear. So then we get down to verses 41 through 59. I'm just gonna kind of skip through these and hit on some of these verses, but verse 41, so the Jews grumbled. Again, if we can look back historically at, um, at the Israelites there in the desert as they're wandering around. As they wonder, what do they do? Grumble. After God provides manna for them, what do they do about it after a few weeks? Grumble. After they get some birds falling out of the sky every morning, what do they do after that? Grumble. After Moses hits a rock, instead of speaking to it, what do they do? Grumble. What do they do after Jesus turns some, turns some biscuits and some sardines into feeding probably 30,000 people? Grumble. After he walks on water, grumble. Classic. They grumble about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. Verse 44, Jesus says, no one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him and I will raise him up on the last day. How do we get to God? Not with enough scientific, mathematical, formulaic equations, not with an experience, not with enough miracles. The Father must draw you. That's how you believe. Verse 47, Jesus again says, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. It doesn't matter how many miracles I do, you are going to die. The miracle is insufficient. I am the living bread, verse 51, that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. There's this living bread. Death is touching, has touched every part of our existence. Some of us, our hair turns gray. Some of us, our hair falls out. Some of us, you have both, right? Some of us, you wake up with aches, physical pains, right, Lane? Some of you, man, your, your energy is just drained. Some of you, you know, what used to be, you know, uh, bulging biceps now turns into, you know, a bulging gut. Things just kind of sink and they just, you know, things just change. Your body changes as you age. Some of you are weak. Some of you, some of you can tell you're aging because you start liking to watch baseball. You know, you're right there. So, so death, age touches every single part of our existence. But Jesus says here, that we are going to die no matter what happens in this physical world. We are going to die physically. I love Cinnamon Toast Crunch. In fact, uh, it's like a drug to me. And so if I refer to Cinnamon, you can look at me and my wife's uh, like shared note uh, for grocery lists. She calls it CTC uh, because that's what it is, Cinnamon Toast Crunch. I love it so much. But as soon as I get through eating a bowl of CTC almost every single night, guess what I need more of? More CTC. I'm, a, I'm addicted, man. 
and I need it the next morning. I need it for like an afternoon. Like I just, I love CTC. I'm addicted to it because guess what? It's not going to fill me. It cannot fill my physical heart, my physical void. Even if I'm full, I'm like, oh man, I've had enough CTC. Guess what I'm going to want the next day, maybe two days later? Some more. But Jesus says, I am the bread of life. If you want eternal life, then come and feast on me. It's a little bit different. Verse number 52, look there. The Jews then disputed amongst themselves. How can this man give us his flesh to eat? So notice, these are Jews who didn't believe in eating bacon. So already we're like, eh, I don't know if I can trust you, right? And now Jesus says, I want you to eat my body and, and drink my blood. They're like, whoa, 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 we don't eat bacon? And you're trying to sell us on being cannibals? Verse 53, so Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. His life must be ingested. You must take it in. The only way that we can receive the life of Christ, listen to this, is by taking the life of Christ, which has a double meaning. Notice, what do we do at the end of Jesus' life? And just a couple years after this, when it was written, we take Jesus' life from him on the cross. And then he says, come and join me in what true life is, a sacrificial life. You must die here in the physical so that you can live for eternity. And we saw this interpretation back in verse number 29, that you may believe. Yeah, so this place where we're believing, in, even in verse, as we get down to uh, verse 56, it says, whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. So we know, as Michael, as you're saying right now, it just, it doesn't work until it comes into you. You know, uh, Eli and I were at O'Charlie's this week. We got the bread is sitting there and I'm looking at it. I'm trying to watch my weight, but I want this, I want this goodness in me. You know, but I can know the nutritional facts. I can know all the information about it. I can look at it, but until I ingest it, it doesn't do anything for me. But this place, this word abide is a really, is an interesting place. It has this intimate aspect to it. It's a re- very relational. Part of the abiding piece of this is that you are in and you're held and you're safe. You're abiding in me. You are safe. You're held. But the only way to get this is when we... Uh, you know, turn to Christ in this. So thinking about eating it, looking at it, discussing it, it doesn't do anything until we actually take it in. But I think it's hard for us, and I know it's hard for me, that it's not easy to really understand the reality that I can't do this on my own, that it has to be the work of the Spirit. This doesn't come just through the flesh. I can't bargain my way in. I can't do something that helps me get this. It comes truly from resting and abiding and taking it in. It's an intimate, relational process that I bring this into me. And it reminds me a little bit of, remember when the disciples go out and they're doing miracles and they're teaching and they're doing all this and they come back and Jesus says, how did it go? And they said, we did all these miracles. It was awesome. And we were casting out demons and we were uh, teaching and people were listening. It was this amazing thing that was happening. What does Jesus respond? Anybody remember? Rejoice not that you're doing miracles and that people were listening to us. Rejoice in that your names are in the book of life, that you're abiding, that you're safe, that you're mine, that you're held. This is what you rejoice in. Yeah. So we finish there in verse number 60. We see the response here of the folks. Verse 60, when many of his disciples heard it, and real quick, when he's talking about hearing by the disciples, he's talking about the crowds. 
he always had constantly these crowds just following him, tens of thousands of people. So when someone here about disciples, it's little D disciples, not capital D disciples, the 12 disciples he had. When many of his disciples heard it, they said, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? And here's why it's a hard saying. It's because while the bread is free, while he says, come and partake, come feast, what it means is you're saying, I need that. I need Jesus, the bread of life, and nothing else will satisfy. Nothing else is going to satisfy. Even though it may feel awesome, be awesome, you may look awesome, whatever it is, it's not going to satisfy eternally. And so it means we relinquish the offerings of this world, and we take hold of the creator of this world. We take his life. So they say, but I, I don't think so. They're saying, I'd rather live for now. I would rather my stomach be full right now rather than my soul be satisfied now and for all of eternity. So they say, we can't understand this. This is difficult. But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, and this is where he turns to the 12, do you take offense at this? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. You cannot receive the bread of life in and of yourself. You must be quickened by the power of the Spirit. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. So we see here, Jesus is okay. He knows that people are going to reject him. We don't want anyone to reject Jesus. And that's true. Really what we mean though when we talk about accepting Jesus is becoming part of a church. Here's the thing. We want as many people as possible to show up here on Sunday mornings. So we offer them music and lights and sound and, and free iPads and television and experience and, and just, just believe. It's real easy. You don't have to surrender. I mean, yeah, if you get a little bit, of, I mean, that's fine. Yeah, that's, that's fine. Just show up half the Sundays. You know, 52% of, of regular churchgoers uh, show up twice a week like that, or twice a month. That's it. Most people who show up on, who are part of a church only show up twice a month to the church service. Hey, that's fine. That's okay. We will make it easy. That's not what Jesus says. He says, if you are going to partake in life, it means surrender all of who you are. Notice the, the response here in verse number 68, uh, or 66. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus then says to the 12, do you want to go away as well? Now I want to see in these last few verses, this dichotomy, this contrast between Peter's response, who normally is really good at key moments of sticking his foot in his mouth. Here he actually does a really good job. He's the nail on the head. So congrats, Peter. But I want to see the contrast between Peter's response and Judas's response. Peter says to him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. You see, Peter is not a genuine disciple because he believes in the miracles. He's not there for the bread. He's not there for the nice things, for the power, for the wealth. He's not there for all of those things. Notice Judas, though. Jesus answered them, did I not choose you, the 12? And yet one of you is the devil. He spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the 12, was going to betray him. You see, Jesus, sorry, Judas, <laughs> big difference there. <laughs> Judas saw all the same miracles. He was with Jesus for all of those years. He experienced all of the, he had just seen Jesus feed tens of thousands of people probably. He had just seen the night before Jesus walk on water. 
He understood the things that Jesus said. He seemed committed, but ultimately he rejected Jesus because in his hand he held those 30 pieces of silver, right? And in that moment, he had a decision to make. Am I going to hold on to these 30 pieces of silver or am I gonna take hold of the bread of life? So the question I want us to end with this morning is, what are you holding on to instead of eternal life? What are you holding on to instead of eternal life? We cannot convince you with, all of, with both of our IQs combined, which are probably hitting triple digits. Yeah. We combine them. We cannot convince you to believe. We cannot convince you that the things of this world will never satisfy you. We cannot. All we have to offer you is the bread of life. His name is Jesus. He will satisfy your soul. There was a, I read about a sociological study this past week, and this was actually a secular non-church study. They weren't looking at John 6 and doing this study. This was a college, I want to say it was Princeton, they did this study, and they found that the three most heartwarming statements to an individual, the three most heartwarming statements, they're just like, oh man, that just fills my soul. The three statements are these. First, I love you. Yeah, that's obviously. Secondly, I forgive you. Third one, it's time to eat. <laughs> You're like, that makes a lot of sense. And when I thought about that, even from a secular perspective, I thought, um, or from a spiritual perspective, I thought, man, that sums up the ministry of Jesus. I love you. I forgive you. Because my body was broken, because it was cut, because it was slashed, because it was beaten, because it went through the furnace, because I endured the wrath of the Father, because all the components were there, yet he was unrecognizable. He rose on the third day after being put to death by us. He says, come, feast on my body. I love you. I forgive you. Now it's time to eat. Now it's time to experience true satisfaction. So Jesus Christ, he lived for us. He became one with us. He says, I've got this. But it required his life. And he says, if you want to have this, it's going to require yours. So die in the physical realm to experience spiritual life forever. So I would plead with you this morning. If you say, I have put my faith and trust in Jesus Christ, is there something that you're holding on to? It's like Jesus and this. I'm not holding quite as tightly onto these things as I am eternal life. Hey man, let go of those. Let go of those. If you have never put your faith and trust, if you have never believed that Jesus has paid the price for you, that when, G, when God the Father looks at you, that your account still has something left, something that you have to do, Jesus said, it is paid in full. It is finished. It is done. I would plead with you this morning to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Believe in him and you will be saved. Fall on the mercy and the grace of God. It, was, it talks here about the will of God the Father. It was the will of God, the, of God the Father to crush his son. And it's only by the will of God that he can call you and draw you to himself. What are you holding on to? I would say, friends, it's time to eat. As we celebrate this meal of communion this morning, this is a reminder. Man, what a perfect reminder that we need something outside of ourselves. We have here represented the, the bread, which is, which is the broken body of Jesus. And as we take that, we dip it in the juice, his blood, which covers us in his righteousness. And we ingest that. 
we partake of it. It becomes part of us. And we do the same thing with Jesus Christ. And he says, taste and see that I am good. Taste this. Experience my presence. Experience my goodness. Experience the fact that you can hold me, but in reality, I am holding you. Taste and see that I am good. His body had to be broken so that you could be made whole. So this morning, we remember what Christ has done. We repent of holding on to so many other things. And we rejoice that when we get to heaven, it's not going to be an eternal church service. Some of you are like, oh, praise God. Because right now I only show up twice a month because of that. It feels like eternity. (laughs) When we get to heaven, it's going to be an eternal feast. An eternal feast where our stomachs are never going to be full. You're like, how does that work out digestively? I have no idea. And nobody's ever written on it, so I don't know. But it's going to be an eternal feast celebrating the finished work of the Lamb that we get to celebrate even this morning as a foretaste. So I would plead with you this morning, if he is your only desire, if you say, man, I I want to only desire Jesus as my only means of satisfaction, this meal is for you. So I would invite you this morning, family, you're invited to join me.